This morning, uh, our reading will be the entire chapter 8 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, And behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, A male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it came up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place will will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and he came uh, where I was. When, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The 
ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And then in the latter period of their rule, when transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, he will, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they were at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Thank you, Jim. I just think he does a great job reading love listening to him. Um, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, um, you are the God of the entire universe, and all of creation screams your majesty. Um, you can't look into the night sky and not be overwhelmed with the glory of it. Lord, thank you for showing yourself, for not being a God who is hidden and hard to find, but Lord, that you are near, close to our hearts. And Lord, you especially thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly in your word, and um, we're, we're grateful to have it. Father, we want to pray for our upcoming uh, trip to paradise to, uh, to do some relief work there. Father, I pray for everybody who's going to be in attendance, that you would keep everyone safe, but also, Lord, that we would really have a, a good time to bond together and to serve that community there. We pray for Paradise Evangelical Free Church, with the work that they have ahead of them. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would fit into their ministry and, um, and bless that church as well. Uh, Father, we want to pray for um, uh, Bev's cataract surgery. Thank you that she's looking good today, that uh, no bandages or anything like that. Lord, that's a miracle of your common grace that we can perform surgery on an eyeball and the person can be fine within a few days. So we'll pray for Bev's eyes that you would continue to heal her and, uh, and knit her back together. Father, as we've already prayed, we ask uh, for your leading, your guidance, uh, that you would show us who our next uh, worship leader will be. And uh, Lord, we pray that you are leading even now us to that person and uh, help us to, uh, to connect and make it really obvious to both sides that this is a good fit. Um, and to that end, also, Lord, we pray for Calvary Evangelical Free as uh, the Crumrise are getting ready to move there. That'll be an adjustment for them. We pray that that would, um, the, the, the changeover would go smoothly, and very quickly they would feel like Ramey has always been there. Uh, pray for Jen to find a job in that place. And Lord, we pray for Kayla as she goes off to college. Uh, Lord, I pray that that is a good experience for her and a chance for growth. Um, 
not just socially and, um, and intellectually, but also spiritually, Lord? Would you use that experience to, to mature her in the faith and to help her walk closer to you? We pray for uh, Kyle and his engagement. We pray that you would bless that union, and uh, we look forward to celebrating with them. And now, Lord, we turn to your word, and we ask your blessing on that. This is, uh, as it says at the end, Daniel's told to seal this up. Um, and so as we go to unseal this, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and help us to understand. Lord, make me to speak this clearly and uh, connect with uh, what you're telling us in a way that would uh, help us to walk closer with Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So back in the 1970s, the early 1970s, and half of the room now is going, oh, yeah, I remember that. And the other half is going, oh, the bad old days. <laughs> but early 1970s, there was a television program called the NBC Mystery Movie. And the NBC Mystery Movie, they had four different detectives that they would rotate through. And so every Sunday, you turn it on, you go, well, who are we going to get this week? And there was uh, Heck Ramsey, McLeod, uh, McMillan and wife, that's the one I remember the most. And then one of my favorites was Columbo. Columbo was Peter Falk. So if you've ever, for the young folks, if you've ever seen Princess Bride, Grandpa, the guy that's reading, that, that's Peter Falk. And Columbo was a police detective, and he wore this, this crumpled um, um, raincoat. This, this, and it was his, by the way. That was his trench coat. He brought it to the audition, and they went, that's perfect, continue wearing it. Um, and he had a cigar in his hand all the time, and he was kind of mumbling and bumbling kind of guy, kind of a simple kind of guy, and drove this nasty-looking old uh, Peugeot. That rolling, running joke was it was going to be condemned at any moment. Uh, what was unique about Columbo, especially in that rotation of detectives, was Columbo employed something called an inverted detective story. And what that meant was within the first act of the, the, the television program, we saw the murder. We watched the person do it. We knew right from the very beginning who the murderer was. And so how do you do a detective program? How do you keep it interesting if you already know who the murderer is? Well, that was the beauty of the inverted detective story is we would be watching as Columbo is kind of bumping into these different clues and picking things up and, and um, trying to draw everything together and, and watching as the perpetrator is lying and, and making up stories and you know, trying to engineer things just right. Uh, by the way, the perpetrator was always an upper-class person, an art critic or a doctor or a movie star or something like that. And Columbo was always just kind of bumbling, you know. So there was this class distinction. It was intended to make it feel like he was a fish out of water. And the end of the stories was always great because Columbo would come in and he would say, I, I just have a few more questions. And the person would be like, I am so tired. Will you stop bothering me? I've already answered all your questions. Well, yeah, I, I, I know. And he'd, so he'd lay out a few more questions and the person would answer them. And he'd go, well, you know, I think you answered it. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry for taking your time. I won't bother you anymore. And he would turn and walk out the door and go, but one more thing. Just, just one more thing. And then he would ask a question like, I, I'm curious to know how you knew about the victim's slippers. We didn't even find them for, until a couple of days ago. How, how did you know that? And that would be the, that would be the undoing of, the, the, um, of the, uh, the murderer, that they would be caught out. Either they'd confess or he'd just arrest them and haul them away. So that's the inverted detective story. You knew who did it. The question is, how are they going to catch him? And so when we turn to Daniel chapter 8, we're kind of entering into something like that, an inverted story like that, because last week in chapter 7, we got basically all of history, Nebuchadnezzar till the end of time. And so now we're going to go back and we're going to go into one section of that story, but we already know the end. 
So how is God going to engage us in that? And how is that going to help us? And what's going to happen? So that's what we're going to see today is Daniel gets this vision to see how it ends in the middle of the story. And, and so that's how we're going to approach it is we're looking towards Daniel's vision toward the end. And so let's take a look into these, these events and see what happens. They, he clicks into one particular part of that story from last week. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in a vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the cat citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision I was at the Yuli Canal. So this is three years after last one. The last chapter 7 says in the first year of Belshazzar, this is now in the third year. And so this, this vision is going to zoom in on one part of that, but what he sees is, the beginning of his description is he sees himself in this vision. So Daniel is most likely still in Babylon because Belshazzar is the last of the Chaldean kings of Babylon, and that was where he was at, most likely. But he sees himself in Susa. Now, Susa was about 200 miles from Babylon, and the Jews at the time would have recognized that to be the political center, the capital, if you will, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so he sees himself under the Medes and the Persians in Susa by this canal. Um, so it's, you've already get the sense that we're, we're moving ahead in time. We're looking forward at something. And so this is what he sees. He says, I raised my eyes, verse 3, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Um, so when Jim read, he's reading from the New American Standard Version, so it said longer. Um, it's literally higher, but it doesn't mean higher. It's probably longer as a fair translation of it. So this is just a little bit more literal. So he sees this ram standing there. And you remember last week, what he saw was a bear. And the bear was raised up on one side. And what we said last week was that was the Medo-Persian Empire because the two sides, Media and Persia, were not equal in that alliance. The Persians were much stronger. And that's exactly what he sees here is those two horns on the ram, but one horn is, is higher or longer or more raised up. And he adds at the end, the, the higher one came up last. This, that's the history of the Medo-Persian Empire is media had established itself and kind of began to spread. And then the Persians came in and, and conquered them and they formed a union. But from that union on, it was the Persian Empire that really took the lead in this. So that's the picture he's painting. And the Jews at the time would have understood, okay, yeah, that ram, that's got to be media of Persia. And so this is confirmed later on by Gabriel, who explains the vision. Um, in verse 20, he tells him that's what that is. So the next thing he sees in his vision, he says, I saw a ram uh, charging westward. And uh, I saw, oh, I saw a ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could resist his power. He did as he pleased. Now, of course, that's, that ram is, is media Persian empire because Persia was in what we think of as south portion of Iran. So where they came was they went flying into Babylon, which would have been to the west, and went down into uh, Egypt, which would have been in the south, and up into Armenia, uh, which would have been northward. And that was what the medial Persian empire did. They, they charged through. They just ran through, and nobody could stop them. But um, remember how the vision began. The ram is standing by the canal in Susa. 
So he's, he's remembering how media, the Medo-Persian Empire spread, but now it's established and it's, it's stationary and it's in Susa and it's, it's rooted and it's standing there. It's, it's, it's done with its conquering. So what comes next? Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west, um, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. So this goat is moving so fast, it's not even touching the ground. It's like a, a, um, a wily e. Coyote cartoon where the roadrunner's wheels are spinning and it's just hovering over the ground and flying. This goat is just rapid as anything, flying out of the west, and it has a conspicuous horn. Now, the word for conspicuous there is actually the word to see, um, like a vision or seeing something. But the way it's used here, it's conspicuous. In other words, there's something about that horn that draws his attention. There's something unique about that thing. Now, a goat with one horn square between its eyes, that's pretty unique to begin with. But this, this horn is what's drawing his attention. It's what's drawing his gaze. And so this, this horn comes, or this one-horned goat comes flying across the land from the west. Verse 6, he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing by the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none who could rescue him from his power. So this ram has attacked that goat, broken the horns, and just trampled him. And again, Gabriel explains to us who this is. Verse 21 says, this is the king of Greece. So what's happening here is this is Alexander the Great. He was the king of um, Macedonia, which would be kind of on the western coast of uh, Greece. And he formed an army, and he marched in. And so in uh, 331, I mean, uh, 334 B.C., I think it is, he marched into what we would consider to be today the western tip of Turkey, and he ran into the Medo-Persian army there under King Darius and wiped him out, just decimated him. And that was 334. Within three years, he's now in Babylon. It, three years, that's an incredible rate of, of conquest in those days. Alexander the Great was unstoppable. So he enters in Babylon in 331. Basically, he's taken over. The Medo-Persian Empire is done, and he's in charge. He then marches south into Egypt. He waged war there for a while, and he actually went as far east as northern India. He made it to the Indus River, which is where India gets its name. That's a huge change. And up into the stands, Kazakhstan and, and um, uh, some of those other stands in that area, he, he had conquered that whole area, that whole region. So that's that picture of that goat flying over the ground. And that's what, what uh, Alexander was known for, is his, his rapid, lightning-fast way of conquering. Um, we, we would call it a blitz today. So that's who, that's who he sees destroy the Median Persian Empire. Verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but, he, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four heavens of uh, four winds of heaven. So what happened is Alexander conquers this great area. He's tremendously successful. And at the height of his power, he develops a bad fever and he died. He was 33 years old. And, and so he has led the, the Macedonian army on this 
grand conquest, and then he dies. And so what happened with, uh, to the, the kingdom that he's now established is it gets split up between four of his generals, those four conspicuous horns facing the four winds of heaven. Last week it was a leopard with wings and four heads. Um, now it's a, a goat with, um, with four horns. But it's the same picture. He's telling us the same, same thing. So that's, that's the, the story that he's seen so far. Verse 9 out of one of them, that is one of the conspicuous horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So what's happened is these, these are visions. This is not a chronological, this isn't watching uh, nature on PBS and getting you know, this timeline strung together. This is visions. And so what we've actually done here with this little horn is we've leapt ahead 150 years. Um, the the um, Macedonian Empire has now been split into four. And we leap forward because out of one of those four generals comes a little horn. Um, this little horn, by the way, we have to keep this straight, is different than the little horn in chapter 7. It has to be. The little horn in chapter 7 came out of the Roman Empire. It came out of the feet of clay. This horn comes out of the leopard, out of the uh, chest of bronze, or the belly of bronze. It comes from Greece. So... Don't get confused because they're both called little horn. I'll explain why I think the vision depicts them both as little horns in a moment. But this is something different. Um, there is continuity between the horns, and, and that's probably why it's named that way. But let's, let's take a look at this one in particular first. One of the generals who took over from Alexander's death was Seleucus, and his great-great-great-grandson was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And so that's who this is. This is Antiochus IV. Um, he is a little horn that rose up. Why is he called a little horn instead of just one of the, the conspicuous horns? Well, because he actually didn't have a call on the throne. He, didn't have, he wasn't in line to succeed to the throne. It was his nephew who was going to do it. So he's kind of a usurper and kind of sneaks in there. So that's why he's a little horn, not like the other ones. But it says that this little horn, when it rose up, it, it became uh, great toward the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. So when Antiochus took over the throne, what he did is he invaded Egypt. He went south. And then he went into Persia, Parthenia, or Parthia, and Armenia, which would have been to the east. And then most notably, the part that we know the most about him was he invaded the glorious land. He invaded Judah. And the reason that we know that is because we have in the Greek edition of the Bible, the Old Testament, we have books that talk about that time period, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Um, so I'm going to mention them as we go through this, but let me just say up front, we don't accept them as inspired. They're not authoritative works of God. They were written in Greek, not in, in uh, Hebrew. They were not part of the original Old Testament. They were added, obviously, in the intertestamental time. So, so Protestants don't recognize them. Roman Catholics do. What we do with them is we look at them and go, they're not inspired, they're not authoritative, but they are great historical documents. It's just like we wouldn't look at um, any other historical document and go, well, it must be inspired. Well, no, but it could be useful. And so First and Second Maccabees are really useful for this. They, they talk quite a bit about this. So let's see what happens next. This is verses 10 through 12. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. 
And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and will act, and it will prosper. So, time out. If the little horn is Antiochus, Epiphanes, um, how could a man wind up growing as great as the host of heaven if we understand the host of heaven is like angels? And how could, a ho- how could a human, a mere man, throw down to the ground and trample that host and even stars if they're angels or, or, or angelic beings? And most importantly, how can a human become great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, if we understand the prince of hosts as Jesus or God? So the question is, are we wrong about Antiochus? Is this someone more than just a man? Um, well, it's possible that we are right about Antiochus and wrong about the host. And so let's take a look for a moment at who this host of heaven, these stars are. Um, when you think about the host of heaven, um, we tend to think of angels because of things like the first chapter of Job. The, the angels are marching before him and God is called the, the Lord of hosts and that kind of thing. But there's a way that host is used that we kind of might glade over. And when you think about the Exodus, for example, the Exodus, it refers to the host that God led out of Egypt. So uh, Exodus 12, verse 41, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So the people of God are referred to as the host of the Lord. And don't forget, this is Daniel writing it. When Daniel spoke about uh, God, especially uh, in verse or chapter 4, he used the term a little elliptically. He didn't say exactly God. But what happened was in chapter 4, it says uh, that you may know that heaven rules. Well, heaven doesn't rule, God rules. So he could be using the term heaven as kind of another way to talk about God. So the host of the Lord could be referred to as the host of heaven. So it might be that we're speaking of uh, God's people. And then I, this is just my take. I have a feeling, I wonder if the host of heaven is referring more specifically to the priests. Uh, because what he says is that the host of heaven and the burnt offerings will be given over. And only the priests could offer the burnt offerings. So maybe it's, it's speaking of, of the priests as the host of heaven. It's possible. Um, there's some other scriptures that kind of support the idea that the host of heaven uh, are, is the people of God. Really, I think the best examples is the way God talks about his people in, in the Exodus. He refers to them as a host quite often. Okay, great. What about stars? Surely stars aren't people, right? Well, think about this for a second. How did God explain to Abraham that he would have many offspring? They would be as numerous as the stars. Go out. He, he told him, go out and look up into the sky and count the stars if you're able. Your offspring will be like that. So it's possible to think of the offspring of Abraham as stars, to talk of it that way. But even more specifically, um, there's the story of Balaam. Everybody remembers Balaam and his talking donkey. But what he did, the reason that the donkey talked, is because he was going to, he was hired to go curse Israel as they were leaving the, uh, the, uh, Egypt and traveling to the Promised Land. They, they, they hired him to curse them. And he said, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. And this is one of the things he said. He, he tried it a couple of times, but in, in Numbers 24, beginning of, or verse 17, 
This is what Balaam says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So it's possible to see a star as a person. In this case, it's a kingly person coming from out of Judah. And if that's not enough to convince you that the stars are probably people as well, Daniel himself says it. Uh, we'll see this in a couple of chapters. Chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise and shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away or turn many to righteousness like the star, um, like the stars forever and ever. Let me try that again. That doesn't sound right. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, what he's talking about there is is when we get to that, it's going to be a little hard to understand because it sounds like it's the resurrection. The saints are raised and they turn many to righteousness, but they will be like stars. So I think what's going on here is that host of heaven and the stars are God's people. And it could be that the host of heaven, like I said, is the priests. And it kind of sounds like stars might be the, the royalty, the royal line, the mighty men. So um, this actually, this theory is actually kind of confirmed by Gabriel again. In verse 24, he says, the little horn will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So that's who the, the little horn is fighting against, and that's who they, they attack, or the, um, the saints. Okay, so he could make himself as great as God's people. He could overrule them. But then it gets difficult. Um, in verse 11, how on earth is he going to become as great as the prince of the host? How could that possibly happen? Well, there's one explanation, because in chapter 10, verse 21, Michael is called your prince. So maybe it's talking about angels. There's an angel who is your prince, the prince of the host. Um, that doesn't really help with Antiochus, does it? Is a man going to become as great as an angel? It just doesn't work. Most people take this to mean that this, this little horn will become as great as God himself. Wait a minute. Nobody becomes as great as God himself. What's going on here? Well, we kind of cheated because um, Jim read from the New American Standard. Um, the way the New American Standard said it is, it even exalted itself to be equal with the commander of the army. So in other words, what he's saying is this little horn exalted himself to this position with God. The New, Amer or New International Version says it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of God. Or the King James he says he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. So when the ESV takes it a little more literally, it comes across like he's making, he is as great as God. But the reality of it is he's exalting himself to that position. He's making himself appear to be that great, thinking himself that way. And that will come out in a little bit. So he's just acting like he's, he's as great as that. And what he's going to do shows you how he thinks he's exalting himself above God. He's going to take away the regular burnt offering. He's going to step into God's worship to what God has commanded and say, no, you don't do that anymore. That, that's making himself equal to God. Um, and this regular burnt offering was taken away or put under his control. That actually happened in 167 BC. Antiochus issued an order that the worship of Yahweh was forbidden and sacrifices were to cease. He took away the burnt offerings. He's exalting himself to God's, um, God's position. 
so here's, here's how he begins to corrupt. Listen to what he does to exalt himself above Yahweh and try to corrupt the people. This is um, from 1 Maccabees chapter 1. says, The king also sent edicts by messenger to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt customs foreign to the country, banning burnt offerings, sacrifice and libations from the sanctuary, profaning Sabbaths and feasts, defiling the sanctuary and everything holy, building altars, shrines, and temples for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised and prostrating themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they should forget the law and revoke all observance of it. Anyone not obeying the king's order was put to death. So this is the little horn exalting himself to God's position. Verse 11 says the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. That's obviously talking about the temple. And what Antiochus did to the temple was really disgusting. Uh, this is from 1 Maccabees um, 1, verse 54. On the 15th day of Chislev, in the year 145, the king built the appalling abomination on the top of the altar of burnt offerings, and altars were built in the surrounding towns of Judah. What happened was Antiochus came into the temple and had an altar to Zeus built over top of the altar of incense. He defiled the temple. He, he desecrated it. Um, 2 Maccabees 5 explains what happened. Not content with this. Listen, I love the way they describe him here. Not content with this. He had the audacity to enter the holiest temple in the entire world. With impure hands, he seized the sacred vessels. With impious hands, he seized the offerings presented by other kings for the aggrandizement, glory, and dignity of the holy place. Not content with this. He did this. He marched into the temple, and he, he just started messing it up. That's how he pictures himself. He, he thinks of himself as equal with God, as I'm just going to go into his temple and, and deal with it. And then it says, it will throw truth to the ground. So this little horn is going to throw truth to the ground. What's going on there is, uh, again from 1 Maccabees, any book of the law that came to light were torn up and burned. Whenever anyone was discovered possessing a copy of the covenant or practicing the law, the king's decree sentenced him to death. He threw truth to the ground because he destroyed the law. He destroyed the, the Bible. Um, and um, you probably don't need to go look at 1 Maccabees because the descriptions of what he did was really horrific. Um, it was really terrible how he, he persecuted those people. So verse 12 says why this happened. Because of transgression. So whose transgression was this? Uh, why did this little horn get to rise up and be so horrible to the Jews? Well, it was because of transgression. Um, was it Antiochus's transgression? Well, it wasn't because of that. It was what happened was his transgression. The transgression that's being discussed here is actually the transgression of Israel. Because what they had done is they began to adopt pagan practices. Um, they even built a gymnasium in in Jerusalem. Now, we think of a gymnasium as a place to go work out, but it was a cultural center of pagan worship, too. And they had it built right in the middle of Jerusalem. Men would, I don't know how they did it, but they would uncircumcise themselves or, or disguise their circumcision. They didn't want to be part of the covenant. The king forced people to eat pork. And if they didn't, they'd be killed. 
So the transgression was a bunch of people went to the king and said, hey, um, how about if we just go with this? Things haven't gone well with us since we separated ourselves from everybody else, so how about if we just do this? And the king went, yeah, okay, let's go. So that's the kind of transgression that's going on. Second Maccabees uh, 5 again says, holding so high an opinion of himself, Antiochus did not realize that the Lord was temporarily angry at the sins of the inhabitants of the city, hence his unconcern for the holy place. Antiochus had elevated himself to the position of God, and he didn't realize that the reason all of this was happening was because God was allowing it because of the transgression. Now, the connection here, I think, to us, because we're looking back, and remember I said the little horn and the little horn and seven are different, but they're kind of the same. They're kind of along the same trajectory. And if you remember when we talked about the little horn from chapter seven, we said that was looking forward to the Antichrist, to the beast of Revelation, to the man of lawlessness, that there was people throughout history who probably fit that bill, but there will be a person coming who will ultimately fit that bill. And it's into that stream that I think this little horn flows. Antiochus did these things in history. He was horrible. He was terrible. And he actually did these things. We've got it documented, not just in uh, Maccabees, also in other ancient works. And he is fitting into that mold of the little horn that will come out of Rome. And that being ultimately the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. So what we're seeing here is a picture. We're we're getting that snapshot. We know the, the crime at the beginning. How does it fit at the end? Well, remember last week we said the church is the temple of God. And the beast would come in and defile the temple. He would sit where he shouldn't sit. And, and that's exactly what Antiochus did. He went into the temple where he shouldn't be, and he defiled it. The church is also the pillar and the support of the truth. And Antiochus threw truth to the ground. And, and Jesus is our offering. He is the sacrifice that makes the atonement. And what we saw last week is what the Antichrist will do will be all kinds of ways deny who Jesus is, deny the Trinity, deny the Incarnation, deny that Jesus is the Christ. What is the church without Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Trinity, as the atoning sacrifice? It's desolate. It's not a church anymore. And so this is how this fits together, is this happened in history with Antiochus. And so we look back and we go, this is real. This is something that's concrete. But what we got from last week is it's also going to happen again in the future. It's coming once more. And so... Why will the church suffer persecution? Israel did it because of their transgression. Will the church in the future, or even now, around the world, in North Korea and China, will the church today suffer because of their transgression? It's impossible. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who were in Christ. Our sin, our transgression, has been fully and successfully dealt with. Then why does the church suffer? Why would we be suffering? Why would we be persecuted? Well, Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be persecuted now for the church is not to be an act of punishment because of your transgression, but for righteousness' sake. We'll come back to that. We'll understand that a little bit more at the end. Let's, Let's press on and see what happens next. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, 
For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? It's the question that we should all be asking. How long is this going to go on? How long will this persecution last? Is this the new normal? And the answer comes back, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. So this horrible vision is not the new normal. It has a finite period. The, 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 the number of evenings and mornings will be 2,300. So the first thing it says is it talks about the transgression that makes desolate. What's that? Well, it is Israel's transgression is why Antioch was sent, Antiochus was sent in, right? And the temple is made desolate. You can't go in and offer sacrifices now because there's a big temple to Zeus in the middle of the thing. Pig's blood has been spilled on the altar. It's desolate. It's empty. It can't be used anymore. The transgression that made desolate has already taken place. And how long? 2,300 evenings and mornings. Um, There is a lot of controversy over that number. There's a lot of different opinions. Um, The uh, Seventh-day Adventists have a theory on that that I would call heterodox. It's not quite exactly what I would consider solid biblical reasoning, but um, I'm going to skip all that and let's just answer what it is. What is he talking about? Well, when it talks about evenings and mornings, it's not talking about the total number of evenings and mornings added together equals uh, 2,300, so it's not half of that is an evening and a morning coming together. What the evenings and mornings are referring to is a regular day, and, and it said that the burnt offering was taken away. How long will the burnt offering be taken away? Well, the burnt offering was offered in the morning and the evening. Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, by day, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, morning and evening. So what he's saying is how many of these morning and evening sacrifices taken together will be omitted? 2,300, that's how many. Why 2,300? What an odd number. You know how many years that is? That's about six years and four months. Why? That's that's just such an odd figure. Why didn't they say for 1,000? You know, speaking prophetically and and in prophetic numbers and round numbers, or why didn't they make it seven full years, 2,555? Why is it six an odd change? Um, I, I think what's going on is God picked this on purpose to remind us that this time is limited. It has an end. It will come to a completion, and then it will be done away with. Remember last week we heard it was going to be time, times, and half a time. And we didn't know what that meant, how many, you know, how many years or anything that was. It's just going to be a long time, a long time again, and then half a long time again on top of it. But it comes to an end. So I think that's what's going on with this odd number. It should stand out. It should sound weird to us is it's God is going to allow this persecution, this trial, this difficulty to go for a set period of time. It will be more, it will be longer than you and I would be comfortable with. If we go through this, this, this tribulation, this trial, this difficulty, we will get to the point where we were like, I am really tired of this. Remember last week we were told he's going to wear down the saints. He's going to wage war and wear them out. So it's going to be a long time. And that's what I think the, the 2300 is, is saying, It's a little longer than you think is right, but 
it's the right amount. God will bring it to an end and ensure that his saints are not harmed by it, not ruined by it. And that, that comes from what Jesus said in Mark 13, 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Why is it 2,300 instead of seven full years? Because for the sake of the elect, God shortened the days. And we look forward to the beast and the persecution he's going to bring. For the sake of the elect, he shortened the days. He will not give us more than we can handle. We can go through this. It just won't be quick. So in verse 15, when Daniel, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So he, this is the picture that he's got in his head, and he can't understand it. It's, it's, it's beyond his grasp because, like I said at the beginning, he's probably still in Babylon under the Chaldeans. And so why is he in Susa, and why is he learning about this goat and this ram and all that stuff? What, he can't gather that. He can't put it all together in his head. And so he goes on, he says, And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of man. And I'd heard a man's voice from between the banks of the Uli. And it said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So in his vision, Gabriel looks up and there's something that looks like a man. That's Gabriel standing a little far away from him. And he doesn't, he doesn't understand that. There's a voice, a human voice comes from, it says, between the Yuli, is literally what it says, what it means between the banks, from the Yuli River, a voice says, Gabriel, go make him understand. That voice is obviously God. Who, who else orders angels about? It's God saying, now go explain it to him. So when he draws near um, and he stood there, he was frightened. Uh, he, it says, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Um, this is what encounters with angels look like. Angels are not cute little fat children with wings and, and rosy little butts. They are not matronly, loving-looking women in long robes with big majestic wings. They're terrifying creatures. Almost every single time in the Bible when somebody talks to an angel, the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. I know you're going to be, but don't be afraid. So when Daniel sees in this vision, he sees that angel Bam, he's on his face. It's a terrifying vision. But he says, understand, O son of man, this, this vision is for the end of time, or the time of the end. Um, so what does Gabriel mean by the vision is for the time of the end? Um, it's the time of the end. It's not the end times, and it's not for uh, the uh, time of the exile. Right? So it's not for the time of his exile, and it's not for the end times way off in the future but it is for the time of the end. The end of what? Well, I think in context, we could say this vision is for the time of the end of the 2,300 days. They will come to an end. And the reason we say that is because what he explains is he doesn't explain the ram and the goat and all that. He goes right into the little horn and spends most of his time there. So that's why I think he's talking about. So here's his explanation, beginning in verse 18. And when he'd spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep and my face on the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to an appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw, the two horns, that's the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, 
As for the horns that were the horn that was broken in its place, four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise out of his nation, but not with his power. So we already covered most of that. What he's saying is, this is looking forward, Daniel. Let's let's zoom past that. We already dealt with that previously in a previous vision. Let's go forward. So verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Strange way to say that. The, the latter end of their kingdom, speaking of the four horns, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Who are the transgressors? Um, the New American Standard says, when the wrongdoers have run their course. The New International Version says, when rebels have become completely wicked. So the transgressors here are wayward Israel. This is Judah who is being rebellious to God. When they have reached their limit, God sets a limit on sin. He does. That's exactly what he told Abraham when he prophesied. He said, Abraham, your offspring are going to go into a country that's not their own for 430 years. Why? Because they're horrible people and I hate them. No, he says, no, because the sin of the Amorites is not full yet. When the sin has reached its limit, when that measuring line has, has been filled up to, then you will come and I'll exercise my judgment on them. Same thing here. The transgressors have a limit. They will go so far and no further. And then God will bring in that little horn to deal with it. So he says that this, this king is a king of bold face, is how it's described in the ESV. Um, in Hebrew, face can mean more than the flesh on the front of your skull. Uh, the face can be something about your personality, who you are, what you're like. Um, stand before the face of God. God doesn't have a face, he's a spirit, but we can stand before the glory, the majesty, the person of who God is. So this king with a bold face is, this king is going to be bold and brash and just gutsy. And then it says in the ESV, one who understands riddles. I just like that. I think that's a clever way to put it. That's a little bit more literal. Um, if you remember how Jim read it, it was skilled in intrigue. And the NIV says something very similar. Skilled in intrigue and extremely bold is exactly how Antiochus got to the throne. The next person in line for the throne was his nephew, but what Antiochus did is he bribed people, he played favorites, he maybe assassinated a couple there, and he got himself put on the throne before his, his nephew. So this is who that king is. This is a man skilled in intrigue. And then Gabriel goes on, his power will be great but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he will destroy many. Does that describe what we just heard about Antiochus? I think it just pictures that perfectly. It's an amazing description of who this man is going to be. Um, he got there. Why did he get there? How did he get there? Did he get there because he is so bold and because, you know, you've got to just take charge of your life and you make big decisions and go charge out and do great things and, boy, you do it. And is he, did it get there because of his skill and, and intrigue and, and politics and all of that? No. What Gabriel said is he didn't get there by his own power. Then whose power did he get there by? God. God put him there. Why did Antiochus rise to power? Why did he invade the, the glorious land? Because God put him there. That's why. The power to trample the host of heaven and cast down stars was given him by God Almighty. 
Verse 25, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So we heard all about his exploits in, in Judea. Um, how does it end for old uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes? It doesn't end well. There's a lot of speculation as to what happened, but the descriptions of his torment is he suddenly felt like his insides were being ripped apart. And some people say that he was poisoned. Uh, some say he caught a disease. Um, I think it's possible maybe he had some really bad infestation of parasites, but it was just tearing him up from the inside. As a matter of fact, one of the accounts says he was eaten by worms, kind of like Herod and Acts. But it wasn't because somebody came up and slipped a knife into his back like Brutus with, with Caesar. He died because God said, okay, Antiochus, you're done. Over. He died, but not by no human hand. So what, what Daniel sums it up, he says, the vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So Gabriel assures Daniel, this vision you've seen is accurate. And boy, looking back in history, we can go, it was extremely accurate, surprisingly accurate. But he tells him, seal up the vision. Um, when he tells him, seal up the vision, it doesn't mean lock it up in a vault and hide it and don't let anybody see it. Um, there's some, some of the prophecy kind of oriented folks have a weird understanding of what it means to seal up the vision. This vision is open and that one's sealed and that one's he's like, I don't think that's what's going on. The clue there is for, the reason to seal it up is because it refers to many days from now. In other words, Daniel, don't lose this. Seal it up, hang on to it, because it's for the future. The future needs to know this. Seal up that vision. It's not for Daniel's time. It's not for the time after him, it's for the time after that. And so the, the chapter ends, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And, and this is an important lesson to learn about suffering and persecution. Christians are not Stoics. We don't just go, oh, well, this, you know, Lord ordained this, this. We'll just smile and, and grin and bear it. When we hear about persecution, when we hear about the sufferings of brothers and sisters in Christ, it should make us sick. It should be sickening to hear what's going on, to hear about these, these pastors in Egypt who are taken out on the beach and have their throats slit on the beach. It should make you sick. It should, it should trouble you. And what Daniel said is, is he went about the king business, but he was appalled by the vision. The persecution of, of Christians is appalling, and it should be. It's okay to be upset about that. Now, you can, you can steal yourself up and say, yeah, but God appointed it all. God ordained it. Yes, he did. And that's why we can have hope in the middle of being sick and, and appalled by these things. It's because God is going to bring it to an end. He has a, a, a specific purpose in mind. So just like that inverted detective story structure that we talked about, we got a glimpse in the middle of the story at how it's going to end. And so we're kind of following through with that story. So we'll see that little horn, Antiochus, and how God regulated his persecution, limited it to so many days, this is how many days you have. And when it was over, God himself intervened and said, die. And Antiochus died. So we can take some comfort in the middle of that, but God is really upfront with us in this, isn't he? He's telling us, this is what happens to my people in the world. This is what comes to the church, is often my people are persecuted. 
and sometimes violently, viciously, in a way that would make you sick and appall you. So why? God, why do you do that? This is one of the arguments that non-Christians have is, is I thought you were God's people. How could he let this happen to you? How can he let these things happen? You know, he wipes out the bad people, but why is it happening to you guys? Well, I think we need to be careful to not quickly and flippantly answer that question. There's some weight to it. And I think to do that, we ought to let it resonate with ourselves. Why would God allow this? And, and I've joked before, I said all of my Calvinism is summed up in this phrase, God does stuff on purpose, including allowing his people to suffer. So why, God? Why would you allow us to suffer? Why would you ordain it in this world to suffer? Well, I think the first answer is when Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world. This is the condition of this world since the fall. Sin has entered in, and riding on its heels is death. It's the way the world is now. God is working his plan to eliminate sin and death and their author, Satan, but his plan is not to have it done in an instant. What we learn by suffering and persecution is the supreme value of the goodness that we're being denied. Is that worth even? even is that worth being suffer, or suffering for? That's this is the world as it is, not the way it should be. And so, is it worth to suffer and to wait for the, the world that will come? Peter asked the question, if you suffer for doing wrong, what good is that? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. It's a gracious thing in God's sight. When we suffer for doing right, what we see is evil is evil. We see the sinfulness of sin. We see how wrong that is. It oppresses and abuses the good things in the world. That sin may be found sinful. So even in a sinful world, People outside the church will often look and go, that was a good person. That's horrible that that happened to him. I may not agree with him. I may not like him, but boy, that was wrong. That makes sin more sinful. It makes it look more evil. It makes us understand that evil is not a television program or a scary movie that's over in 45 minutes. Evil is real. It's personal. Antiochus was a human being. He was not a monster. He was not some fallen angel or something. He was a human being who was capable of that. And you can just march through history and name other people. Stalin was a human being. Jeffrey Dahmer was a human being. People are capable of this. And so when we suffer, when we're led into suffering, we can see exactly how evil evil is. It reminds us, it refreshes us in the understanding that people need to be saved. They are really this evil. They're really this horrible. As we endure suffering and persecution, we long for and cry out for relief. Of course you do. Of course you should. We naturally seek the end of evil and the prevailing of peace. Doesn't that sound like what God's plan is? Lord, we want evil to end and we want peace to prevail. We know that these are not the way things should be and, how, and what we desire is what they are. Under persecution and suffering, our hearts are trained to seek better and to increasingly hate what's wrong. I think that's what it means to grow in the image of Christ, is to hate what's wrong more and to seek more of what's, what uh, God is, is working. God works, uh, God's work of conforming us to the image of his beloved son is not always easy and comfortable. He may use suffering in our lives to do that work since Jesus' life was not all that easy either. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
The last thing is, we're told, let your good works shine before men that they may glorify your Father who's in heaven. So as we're suffering, as we're enduring the wrong for the sake of what's right, it shows glory to God. It lets him know, it lets people know that there's something worth suffering for. When we hear God tell us that persecution is coming for the unrighteousness of Israel, but because of the unrighteousness of the world against the church. And we know, we can tell that it's only for an allotted point of time, a finite measured amount of time. What God is telling us is he's warning us and he's saying, you can't endure. I would not set that end point beyond what you're able to endure. The days were cut short for the sake of the elect. God has a purpose in it. We don't always understand it. We don't always feel comfortable with it, but God has a purpose in it. Another one is he may cause us to grow in, in prayer. It's easy to not pray when things are going really well. It's much more urgent to pray when things are troubling. I know that because when Ramy came and said, we're taking this position in New Jersey, my prayer life skyrocketed. Wow. It was much easier to happen into prayer. And so that's nothing compared to persecution. That's just the Kremrise leaving, which is bad enough, but it's not like we're going to get you know, skinned alive or something. So it can use that to, to cause us to grow in grace. Here's the question. Isn't there any other way God could have done this? Surely he could have found another way to do this. Can't he just snap his fingers and make us all do those things, trust him, pray, and all of that? Well, apparently... That would not accomplish his good purpose in allowing evil to exist. It just wouldn't meet his ends. So when we look back at Antiochus, we see he's demonstrated in history that he is sovereign over the evil of man. He will bring it to an end. He will deal with antichrists and the antichrist. And he will lead his people through it. That's why we needed to get the inverted detective story here. We needed to know the end from the beginning. And we need to hear it again because... Persecution will come upon his people at different times and different places. But we must never forget that God is sovereign over all of that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thinking about the persecution that brothers and sisters in Christ face around the world, we pray now that they would their persecutors would be ended not by human hands. Lord, for um, ISIS and... Um, Boko Haram and the other terrorist organizations who are kidnapping, torturing, murdering Christians. Father, for the evil empire in North Korea that persecutes anyone who even thinks about a Bible, anybody who who trusts in Christ. Father, for China as they turn the screws down on the church there. Um, As in many Islamic countries, Christians are persecuted and chased out. We hear about people converting from Islam to Christianity and um, honor killings taking place, acid being thrown in their face, other horrible things. Lord, we, we commend all of these things to you. We know that every single one of these atrocities, every single one of these barbaric acts is right before your face. Jesus, you said you would never leave nor forsake us. And so you're right there with your people as they're being tortured. And Lord, we pray for justice We pray for the right end. But Lord, we pray especially that your church would be given the grace and the faith to endure and that your gracious, glorious purposes, conforming us to the image of Christ, causing us to grow in grace, 
teaching us to pray more readily. Lord, would you accomplish those great things so that even the evil of man can't overcome your kingdom? That rock that no hand had carved out of the mountain, striking the foot of the, the, um, the idol and causing the whole thing to turn to dust. Lord, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, would you preserve your church around the globe? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.